Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, a multi-award winning show for travelers by travelers. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Today, we'll take off on a cross-country flying adventure with a pilot set to visit every state capital in the lower 48, plus Alaska. And then we'll head off to Ohio's Lake Erie shores and islands for some roller coaster thrills at a beloved amusement park. And then we'll commemorate an epic but forgotten battle in the War of 1812. If you love flying, have a need for speed, or just want to know about Ohio's role in shaping a fledgling nation, today's World Footprints radio show is just for you. Thanks, dear. Imagine flying a small plane to all the state capitals in the lower 48 and Alaska in a two-week span. Pilot Field Morey and fellow co-pilot Conrad Titel are about to do just that as the two take to the skies this week. Their Capital Air Tour is an effort to raise awareness about small airports' big contributions to tourism and to promote geographic literacy in our nation's schools. Field Morey joins us to tell what's behind this ambitious quest. I'm convinced that that the reliever airport is, is a very valuable thing, and uh, a lot of our smaller airports are disappearing, and I, I think we, we need to step up and save them. Ohio's Lake Erie shores and islands hold special memories for Tanya and me. Our recent journey to Cedar Point and Sandusky, the roller coaster capital of the world, was a trip down memory lane as we rolled an old standby, the Blue Streak roller coaster, and discovered a new one, Gatekeeper, the world's tallest inversion coaster. Cedar Point is more than a park. It's about making memories that last a lifetime, as the park's Brian Edwards reminds us all. People remember that trip to Cedar Point. Whether you came as a child with your parents or grandparents, whether you came when you were in high school and college with your friends, or whether you come now with your kids and grandkids, people remember trips here. And it's so neat to work in a place where people come to have fun. Finally, one of the decisive battles in the War of 1812 took place in Lake Erie's Put-In Bay, where Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry captured the British squadron and raised the now-famous Don't Give Up the Ship flag on board the U.S. Brig Niagara. We'll learn about the Battle of Lake Erie and the lasting peace that continues to this day between the United States, Great Britain, and Canada as we walk the grounds of Perry's Victory and International Peace Memorial with the National Park Service's Marianne Duvendak. Conversely, it was the worst defeat ever of any naval fleet. So we we commemorate the battles and we celebrate the international peace Um, partly with this incredible Doric column that you can see from both countries. We hope you'll enjoy our Capital Air Tour and a trip to Ohio's Lake Erie Shores and Islands. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. The challenge of flying a general aviation airplane to all the state capitals in the lower 48 plus Alaska in just two weeks is one that most private pilots would never accept. But Field Morey and Conrad Titel are not your average pilots. The two veteran pilots will be taking to the sky in what has been labeled the Capital Air Tour to raise public awareness about the importance of smaller municipal airports to tourism. This ambitious quest will utilize the Green Hornet, pilot Field Morey Cessna Corvallis TTX-4 passenger airplane for the tour, which will see stops at several airports on each day. 
Field Morey joins us to share more about his upcoming aviation adventure. Field, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you. How did the idea of the Capitol Air Tour come about? Well, uh, it all was due to my flying partner, Conrad Titel, who was a student of mine back in the 90s uh, for what we call the West Coast Adventure, a, uh, a week-long trip uh, from the Midwest out to the West Coast and back. And uh, Conrad and I have uh, flown together uh, several times since then. And last year, he uh, came up with the idea of flying from the highest airport in the United States, which is Leadville, Colorado, to the lowest, which is Death Valley. And uh, we accomplished that. And uh, uh, then early this year, he called me back and said, you know, I've got to raise the bar a little bit here, Field. Uh, I would like to fly to every state in the Union uh, on our next trip. And I said, well, let's make it a little more challenging. Let's let's fly to the state capitals of every state, uh, state cities, uh, excuse me, to the capital cities of every state. So that's where we came up with the name Capital Air Tour. And we have uh, two weeks to accomplish that. And on September 16th, uh, we start out and... Hopefully the weather and mechanical things will cooperate and we'll we'll meet our goal. Now, as you get set for this tour, are there any special preparations that you've uh, undertaken uh, uh, before the start of this uh, uh, tour? Well, not really. Uh, it's a matter of mapping out the most direct route to, uh, to uh, link all those cities and uh, Given a uh, optional route, which we're going to uh, assess when we get to the Midwest, uh, it is hurricane season, and uh, we have to have a plan B in in case uh, the weather in the Gulf Coast and and Eastern Seaboard uh, uh, tend to complicate our route. Both you and Conrad are very adventurous, uh, but in your pre-Conrad flying uh, partner days. Uh, I know you also set a world record crossing the Atlantic Ocean in a single-engine Cessna. What was that like for you? Oh, that was, I still can remember that. Uh, My flying partner at that time was Dr. Oliver Smithies, and he also was a student of mine. He is now the uh, chairman of the uh, biology department at Chapel Hill University of North Carolina. And several years ago, Oliver... Uh, won the Nobel Prize for Science, and uh, I was very proud of the fact that I was mentioned by name in his acceptance speech in Stockholm, Sweden, as one of the people that influenced his life. Uh, And he quoted me uh, by saying that I taught him uh, to overcome fear with knowledge uh, during the time that I was teaching him to fly. And he still uses that uh, that theme with his uh, postdoc students at North Carolina. So uh, he's also a very close friend of mine and as, as adventurous as Conrad Titel is. <laughs> and and I, I love his, uh, his mantra as theme, and it's one I think we can all uh, adopt. Um, now, the Cessna seems to be your aircraft of choice. What is it about that aircraft that gives you a level of comfort as you undertake these aviation challenges? Well, first of all, uh, my father 
who I learned to fly from, was one of the first 10 Cessna distributors uh, beginning in 1946. So I've been, I've been wedded to Cessna ever since. Uh, I believe they, they build a very quality, a very, very good quality airplane, and uh, the TTX, although that's not originally a Cessna design, uh, has appealed to me. I, I first looked at that airplane when the, the Columbia Aircraft Company uh, was, was building it, and later Cessna bought that company, and I was, I was very impressed with the, um, the construction of it. So uh, in December, I took delivery of, of the Green Hornet, as we call it, and uh, I've flown it about 100 hours since then, and uh, I'm confident that that's the airplane to use. Mm-hmm. Why the, the focus on municipal airports? Is it in part because you grew up in a municipal airport environment? Well, uh, the focus is really on uh, satellite or reliever airports. Uh, so several of the cities that we go to, Tanya, are uh, will be landing at what's designated a reliever airport. Uh, I operated such an airport back in Madison, Wisconsin, for 33 years. It was my father's airport during the war, and uh, we finally convinced that the local community needed the airport more than I did, and they needed they needed the federal aid that goes along with reliever airports so that it could be expanded and developed to its potential. And that was done uh, in 1998, when, when I finally left the operation after 33 years. My son and daughter now operated, and it's become a very successful uh, airport. There's lots of uh, business uh, development at the airport, and it's uh, become a real asset to the community. So I, I'm convinced that that the reliever airport is is a very valuable thing, and a lot of our smaller airports are disappearing, and I, I think we, we need to step up and save them. What's behind the disappearance of these smaller airports? Is it urbanization, economics? Well, a, a, little, a little both, Ian. Uh, in our case, and I think our case is a very representative case, uh, we privately owned the airport, and as such, we could not get any federal aid for development or improvement. Uh, and the community, uh, like you say, urbanization kind of caught us. Uh, the city began to build up around the airport so that the property taxes that we had to pay kept rising year after year. Uh, and uh, finally got to the point where we had to take a hard look at keeping the airport because we we were struggling to pay just the taxes and we could not uh, find any capital to to buy the land that we needed to uh, attract uh, the business aircraft, you know, the small jets and the turboprops. So we were just kind of hemmed in with property taxes and, and lack of uh, expansion. On September the 20. 20- Second or so, you will be flying into the national capital region from Richmond to Annapolis, and I'm curious in terms of the flight planning coming into the Washington area, if that has posed any special challenges, or do you have to go ahead and follow your flight plans with the FAA before you take to the sky? Uh, you're very observant. In fact, uh, it's uh, interesting that you should pose that question because 
Just uh, yesterday, I completed the uh, the uh, FAA's course on the what they call the special flight rules area around D.C. It's a 30-mile ring around around the uh, city of Washington, and uh, you have to, if you are flying through that area on an instrument flight plan, it, it's not very uh, different than any instrument flight plan. You have to communicate with air traffic control. You have to respond on a on a transponder code is assigned to you. Uh, but if you're flying through visually, uh, then you have to special file a special flight plan that lets the FAA know at what point you're going to enter that flight rules area and what point you're going to exit. So uh, I, having no experience with that, that, that was brand new to me, and I've, I've just completed the course. So, Field, what do you actually have planned for each stop? I mean, there's a mission to this tour. What will take place at each stop that you, you go to? Well, obviously we're not going to have a lot of time on our hands when we, when we land at these places. Uh, so um, we're going to be talking about flying into four to six airports a day on the average. We've uh, allotted about an hour's time at each stop to uh, take care of refueling and the necessary things that you need to do on a flight like this. The last stop of the day we have... Um, set aside for media interviews uh, where we hope to talk to the media and uh, and you know convince them that the the satellite or jet or reliever airport is is a valuable thing for the community uh, we've also uh, I, I came into contact with the daughter of a friend of mine several weeks ago she's a first grade teacher in Boise Idaho and she became aware of of our capital tour and said, hey, this is a great thing for uh, my class to uh, study and to learn about the various states and and uh, measuring distances. And so she's using the Capital Air Tour as a... Uh, as a, a lesson plan for the children, and hopefully they'll bring the children out to the airport in Boise. And um, our our firm, our public relations firm, is sending out uh, school packets to to uh, a lot of schools in the area with a map of our flight, and inviting the school children to follow us, follow our path uh, via internet. We're going to be carrying a spot tracker with us so that anyone can go to our website at any time that we're flying and see where we are. It's going to give our position for every five minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully uh, school children will uh, catch wind of this, and uh, I think it would be a great learning experience for them. I think the work that you're going to be doing with the schools is uh, very critical because a lot of American children and adults are not geographically literate. Just to highlight what you said, uh, uh, the this teacher that uh, I am working with in Boise said that her children in her class think they live in the country of Boise. Oh, bless. Okay. Now, Field, as uh, you uh, touch down in uh, these various capital cities, is there a capital city or uh, capital cities that you're looking forward to visiting? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm very interested in Annapolis uh-huh. because it's got a very short runway. In fact, I'm very surprised that the you know the closest uh, city to Washington D.C. Uh, 
very close to Washington, D.C., has such a very small runway. It's only 2,400 feet long. So that's going to be a challenge for the airplane I'm flying. Field, I, I can only imagine the amount of planning and preparation that's gone into this tour. Um, you know, you, you had to have started last year after your other adventure, <laughs> flying from the, right. the highest airport to the, to the lowest. Um, any thoughts on your next adventure? Because I know there has to be one. Oh, I've got my eye on South America. Hmm. Um, my father in 1951, when he was a distributor for Cessna, along with my mother, took a Cessna 195. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, it was an aircraft that Cessna built at the time, and they delivered uh, two Cessna 195s to uh, Juan Perón in Argentina. And this was back in, I mean, we're talking back in 1951. So he made the flight, and I would kind of like to follow up on what he did, fly around South America. Mm-hmm. I've, I've flown in New England. I've flown in Africa. I've flown in, in uh, New Zealand. Uh, but South America is a, a little more of a challenge. Well, you know, one of the uh, airports that you'll be touching down at is um, my home city of Lansing, Michigan. And I, I'm personally very excited for you to fly into uh, into Lansing. Um, and so when you are there, and if, even if you're not giving a media tour, just give a big wave hello to the folks there for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've flown into Lansing many times. Great, great town. Very great uh-huh. town. So I call it God's country. Ian is from Ann Arbor, so the other side of the um, university tracks. But uh, Oh, okay. He's a, he's a Wolverine then. Yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah. and proud of it. I'm a badger. Uh-huh. Well, hey. Hey, all of these all of these big big 10 battles and big 10 rivalries. Right. It yeah. keeps it interesting right. throughout the season. How can the public actually follow your travels? You mentioned, you know, some of the items that you have for, you know, the school teachers that you're distributing to some of the schools that you're working with. How can the general public follow you? Well, you just go to our website. Uh, my website is ifrwest.com, and there will be a link to, uh, specifically if you want the shortest link, it's ifrwest.com slash CAT for Capital Air Tour. And that will take you to a, uh, a map of our uh it's just a drop-down menu that takes you to the Capital Air Tour, and there will be a spot there where you can click on the uh, click on the on the map, and there will be uh, where we are at the time you uh, you look for us. And, and then you have a Twitter account as well, yes. Uh huh. Which is, um, I think, if memory serves, just Capital Air Tour. Yep. Okay. At Twitter. All right, Field Moray of the Capital Air Tour taking to the skies later this month, along with his uh, co-pilot and former student, Conrad Titel. Field, best of luck to you, and thank you for being with us on World Footprints and Safe Travels. You're very welcome, and uh, we, we look forward to it, and uh, we're all excited about it. After the break, it's off to Ohio's Lake Erie Shores and Islands and Cedar Point Amusement Park as we ride a coaster or two and share some memories with the park's Brian Edwards. People remember that trip to Cedar Point. 
whether you came as a child with your parents or grandparents, whether you came when you were in high school and college with your friends, or whether you come now with your kids and grandkids, people remember trips there. And it's so neat to work in a place where people come to have fun. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Locks my socks. In Italy, police smash an international human trafficking ring. Officials in India announce over a thousand human traffickers arrested this year. And authorities in Peru charge a man and his wife with trafficking babies to Europeans through the internet. Human traffickers are active all over the world. But by joining forces, we can stop these criminals. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGift.org. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Severampton, England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and uh, wish you all the success with your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Ohio's Lake Erie Shores and Islands hold special memories for me and Ian. Our recent journey to Cedar Point in Sandusky, the roller coaster capital of the world, was a trip down memory lane as we rode an old standby, my favorite, the Blue Streak, and discovered a new one, the Gatekeeper, the world's tallest inversion roller coaster. Cedar Point is more than a park. It's about making memories that last a lifetime, as the park's Brian Edwards reminds us. Brian, thank you so much for uh, joining us on World Footprints and having us back to the place of my, ch- my childhood, Cedar Point. Yeah, it's been uh, several years, and again, I think the first thing you mentioned was that, wow, it looks totally different, it's only been a few years, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I always used to wonder how, with Cedar Point being on a peninsula, how on earth you find room to build more and more roller coasters and other, uh, otherwise. Yeah, you know, we're, we're a 364-acre amusement park here, and we have more rides than any other park in the world. So you're right, you know, we're, we're on a confined space here on the peninsula, so what we do is we like to say people vote with their feet what they like. Right. So we watch and we keep track of how many people ride every attraction here, uh, we keep track by the hour, by the day, by the week, by the month, even by the year. And if we notice a ride is getting fewer and fewer people on it, and it's getting older and the cost to maintain it is going up and up, we'll look to replace it with something better that our guests will enjoy more. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned to me that you took down an old staple, the spindle uh, yeah. tower here. Yeah, Space Spiral is a great example. It was an iconic ride for Cedar Point. It was used in so many logos and videos and photos of the park, uh, but it was getting up in age. You know, it, it was going on 40 years old, and fewer and fewer people were riding it. We noticed it was costing more and more to upkeep. Uh, so again, so we looked at that as a prime uh, piece of real estate that we could use to develop something new, and we did. We put our new Gatekeeper roller coaster on there last year. And just in terms of numbers, you know, Space Spiral gave a couple hundred thousand rides. 
Right. Where last year more than two million people rode Gatekeeper. Right. So, right. so again, you know, I'm looking at that saying a great success. Now tell me, please, as we walk towards my first love, my first roller coaster love, the Blue Streak. Yes. There, please tell me there are no plans to tear the Blue Streak down. Nope. And actually, uh, you'll find this interesting. We're celebrating its 50th year this year. Oh. So it's our oldest operating coaster, but it's a classic, you know, and that's an icon that is synonymous with Cedar Point these days. It's that traditional wooden roller coaster that provides the thrill, you know, the up and down, the big turn at the end, and you right. come back. For many people, that was their first big roller coaster they ever rode. And, uh, yeah, no, that's got no plans of going anywhere. And, again, in fact, we're celebrating 50 years of it this summer. Oh, awesome. Well, we're here just in time to, to take a ride on it. So, uh, Ian, I will say um, that's probably Ian's least favorite roller coaster uh, just because it jars him. And... Uh, I don't think he was expecting the speed that we got when we rode on it. Yeah, it's a faster coaster. It is an older coaster, so yeah, it is more of the traditional, you know, you ride it, you're going to feel it. Um, you know, as technology has changed over the years, you know, to allow us to build, you know, 150, 200, 300, even 400 foot tall coasters, it's also allowed us to do it smoother, provide a more comfortable ride, but make it safer as well. Okay. Tell us about the Gatekeeper. It's your newest coaster here. Yeah, Gatekeeper was our brand new roller coaster last year. And it's unlike any other coaster we have here at Cedar Point. It's actually a winged roller coaster. And what I mean by that is, you know, traditionally if you're on a coaster, you sit on top of the track. Or we're walking under a raptor here, you hang below the track. On Gatekeeper, you're actually out on wing. So you're actually, the, the ride experience is exaggerated as you go left and right and turn upside down. Ah. Uh, it's almost like you're sitting on the ends of an airplane wing. Okay. And uh, again, a great addition to our park. It was a world record-breaking ride. Um, and again, more than two, two million people rode it last summer, which is huge. So we think it was a great addition to our lineup. Now, how old is Cedar Point? Cedar Point actually started back in 1870. We're actually the second oldest amusement park here in North America. We've had roller coasters for over 130 years here. And again, it's, it's that combination of great rides and attractions, a clean, safe park, and again, it's, it's a place that has something for everybody, for families of all ages. So again, it's flourished. Again, like I said, uh, we're the biggest park in the world in terms of rides, mm -hmm. and we've also been voted the best amusement park in the world for 16 years in a row. You want to ride while we're here? Sure, why not? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it and hear me scream. <laughs> well, after that blue freak ride, I tell you, um, I'm starting to feel my age a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen, as I've gotten older, I've, I've looked more towards the gentler rides, uh, the shows, the guests. Uh, little kids too, so I, I catch myself more in the uh, children's area than on the coasters. <laughs> so, Brian, I noticed your um, on your tag. Uh, I noticed on your tag you have uh, 22 years of fun below yeah. your name. That is that how long you've been with a park? Yeah, yeah. I started here in 1992, uh, just as a fun summer job. You know, something to make money while I was in college. And uh, little did I know, I would turn it into a career. But uh, again, I really enjoy working here. It's a great park. And, and you know, the neatest thing about working here is people come here and create memories. Right. right. You know, and 
you know, it's... Nobody remembers going to a movie. Nobody remembers going shopping at the mall. People remember that trip to Cedar Point. Whether you came as a child with your parents or grandparents, whether you came when you were in high school and college with your friends, or whether you come now with your kids and grandkids, people remember trips here. And it's so neat to work in a place where people come to have fun. You know, and I was telling Ian, Cedar Point is my happy place. Yep. that's passed down from generation to generation and you're right the place people come you forget your cares and worries you forget about how much gas was to get here you forget about the economy and jobs you can come here and have a day's worth of fun for some people it's riding 17 roller coasters and 72 rides for others it's going to the kids areas for even others it's seeing great live shows or going to the beach but it's hey, it needs to be able to be a small part of that. Again, I work at a place where people come and smile all day. Right. What an awesome place to work. Now, how many rides are in the park right now? We have 72 rides now, uh, 17 of which are roller coasters. But the other neat thing, and I think a lot of people forget this, we're going to turn to the right here. Um, there's kind of the misconception that we only have big, tall, fast rides and coasters, when really more than half of our rides kids can ride, our kids and their parents can ride together, so it's not just for, you know, thrill seekers, there really is a lot to do for kids of all ages. Now, we, um, we stayed at a very nice hotel last night, which is on site here, Hotel Breakers. Yep. When I was a kid, we used to camp out on the beach, and I know that the campsite still exists today. Yeah, we have we have uh, several resort options for overnight guests. Like you said, you stayed at the Hotel Breakers, which is the ultimate convenient hotel. I mean, you're literally within walking distance of the park. So if you get tired during the day, if you have little ones that want to take a break, you can walk back to your room and walk right back into the park. We have an all-suite hotel. We have an RV campground. We have cottages and cabins for our guests. We also have two marinas, an indoor water park, another resort property right at the end of our peninsula. So really have something, again, for all types uh, if you want to come and make a mini vacation out of your trip. We met in the Hotel Breakers today a wonderful woman in the gift shop who's from New York. Really? And, yes, and at the end of the summer, she's going back to New York to become a nun. Wow. And there's a lot of wonderful stories. People come from all over. How much attention to detail is put into the hiring process here, particularly with the, the young people who are running the, um, the safety protocol for yep. the roller coasters? Yeah, we hire about 5,000 employees every summer. And out of that, or to get to that number, we probably see maybe 30 to 40,000 40, applications. So we're really picking one out of every six, one out of every eight people to work here for us. That really allows us to get the best of the best, and each one of those um, gets an interview, a face-to-face -face interview, so we can see who that employee is, we mm -hmm. get to know that employee better, um, and again, you see it. Like you said, when you're in the park, you see those employees They're from around the world. We're looking for that employee that wants to, you know, that can follow our cornerstones, which is service, safety, courtesy, cleanliness, and again, those employees that will do whatever it takes to help our guests have their best day when they visit us here at Cedar Point. So right now we're approaching Gatekeeper, the newest roller coaster that we're going to have an opportunity to ride on very soon. Who designed that and how do you choose the architect 
who designed these these coasters. Ride like gatekeepers been in the in the planning process for about three summers. And what we do is we go to different ride manufacturers and say, here's what we're looking to do. You know, and the you know in the example of gatekeeper, we went to ride manufacturers and said, we want a new type of coaster, unlike anything we have here. We want it to be a record breaker. And here's kind of the land area we have to put it in. So what they'll do is they'll come back to us with their ideas, their designs, their concepts, and then we pick the one that we think best suits us and best works for us, and then we figure out, okay, how do we put it in the park? And, you know, what do we need to change in the design? What do we need to change at the park? And the neat thing that Gatekeeper allowed us to do is we wanted to change our front entrance. Our front entrance was very old. You know, it was, it was designed back in the late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't very guest-friendly. So... Gatekeeper actually helped us do two projects at once. The first was redesign that front entrance you saw when you came in. Very inviting, very open. What you saw at that front gate matches the excitement and everything you see in the rest of the park. Then, obviously, the coaster. Huge fan favorite. Again, over 2 million people rode it in its first summer. And very reliable. It's a unique angle. Again, you're out at the end of these wings. And then its location, right next to the beach, has been a great addition to the park. The beach. I was surprised to hear you say that a lot of people didn't realize that Cedar Point was actually a beach resort. Yeah, absolutely. Our researchers told us that, unfortunately, once you get outside the state of Ohio, uh, you know, Ohio has that stigma of being a flyover state or, you know, an agriculture state, when really nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we've got a beautiful mile-long beach, Lake Erie, which you can go swimming in, fishing in. And then in the back, you know, right behind there, I've got the world's largest amusement park. Yeah. So it, it really does, you know, provide opportunities for any guest. You know, mom and dad want a, a resort getaway. I got it. I mean, you know, put you know put a chair down on that beach, and that's the ultimate relaxation. You got kids who want to ride and have fun. Again, I got the best amusement park in the back. And uh, again, I like to say the backyard. Uh, but again, it really does provide something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've been here 22 years, as we discussed. Yep. And you said your ride preferences have changed over the years yes. because you have children now. Yep. But what was your favorite coaster then, and and what's your favorite? Well, your favorite ride. I'll, I'll yeah, qualify I'd that. Yeah, I say you know, growing up, I came here a lot. Um, I'd say my favorite ride back in the day was Raptor. Just a great ride. You're hanging from the track. You have that sensation of flight, especially front seat of Raptor. You can see everything coming at you, and again, you're just flying. It's a great ride. Um, for a while there, it was the train. <laughs> We're one of the few parks in the world that has an actual steam-powered locomotive. Yes. Um, and so for a while, that was my favorite ride. Uh, now it's the rides I can do with my kids. You know, my kids came over. I got four of them. They're all ages eight and younger. Um, they love the fact that Dad works at Cedar Point, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, I'm the cool dad when it comes to career day and, and, and birthday parties. Um, but, you know, I, I get joy now out of riding rides with them. You know, even something like the old-fashioned cars mm-hmm. that the kids can drive. They love the fact that they can drive Dad around in those cars, right? So I, I get my biggest thrill now out of seeing them smile, get excited, have fun. So, yeah, it's the kids' rides. And, again, it's those ones that we can do together that I enjoy riding the most of. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just wanted to share, you, you reminded me of uh, another childhood memory here. Those little old-fashioned cars to where I learned to drive. Yeah. Admittedly, I ran off the track a few times, <laughs> <laughs> but it's made me a better driver. Yep. Yeah, let's stick in here real quick. I just okay. want to show you something. Okay. Um, 
my oldest is eight, then seven, five, and one. Uh, the uh, oh the infant my. just turned one yesterday, but yeah. Bless. This is uh, me and the five-year-old <laughs> doing the old-fashioned cars. And again, the smile on his face, I mean, he's just, I mean, couldn't be any happier. He's one? Uh, no, 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 oh, he's five. Five, five. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, bless. Yep, so yeah, there's the five-year-old. Let's see. And you're... You're closing your yeah, eyes. Yeah, I'm acting like I'm scared. Yeah. He, was, he was just laughing and yelling. Yeah, there's there's the oldest oh, driving bless. by herself. She's all excited. Poor little thing. She's standing up because she's yep. too short. There's Dominic. There's the six or seven-year-old. Oh, and again, yes. He was finally tall. I mean, just by this much <laughs> to be able to drive. So, yeah, again, just to show, that's fun to me. You yes. Know? We come with those guys. We never step foot on a coaster. Never. We have a great time at Cedar Point. You know, my mm-hmm. mom and dad have season passes. They love coming over and watching the kids do, I mean, they can't ride rides anymore, but they love watching them doing little spinning rides because I did that. You yes. know, they have pictures of me riding those rides, and now it's the grandkids riding those rides. So, again, they come over, they never step foot on a ride. They have a blast. So Cedar Point is really kind of becoming your family legacy Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. It's becoming a tradition for my family as well, yeah. I remember coming with mom and dad, and then I came during college and high school, and then, yeah, I'm taking my kids now, and I guarantee you they'll bring their kids here as well. So, yeah, it's a neat family tradition that gets passed down from generation to generation. And, again, you know, love the rides to coasters? We've got them for you. Don't like them? I guarantee you you'll have fun today. You know, and that's a, another popular question we get is, why do I pay full price? I don't ride the coasters. Again, we're selling a day's worth of entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it is riding rides and coasters. For others, it's seeing great shows. For others, like my family, it's just going to the kids' areas. Mm-hmm. I, I give ten times, <laughs> you know, I get ten times worth what the cost is to come in and just fun and entertainment with my kids. You know, uh, you know, we buy a video game system. It costs me a couple hundred bucks. I get that money back. We right. have fun with that. We play with it over and over again. Same thing with admission tickets, to your point. Right. I get, you know, multiple times the value back in creating memories. You know, again, I'll, I'll have those pictures forever. You know, I'll always look back on them. And, you know, it's other neat thing of working here is... Whenever I tell people I work at Cedar Point, mm-hmm. instantly the smile comes on their face, and they tell me the story of they when they first rode the Blue Streak, or when they used to come. And, you know, and everybody has those stories. Again, it's neat to hear those, and, and it's very I don't want to say self gratifying, but. In a small part, I get to help make that. You know, I'm the PR guy. I'm the one that tells you, hey, you've got to go to Cedar Point. You know, so in a small way, I get that little ball rolling. But, yeah, it, I, I help people have fun. And, and in today's day and age, it's, those are hard to come by. Well, looking at the smile on your face. Exactly. You tell right, right? that you just have that, fun. And, about my kids, right? Exactly. Yep. And, and just the fun time that you had here, you yep. know, growing up in this park, essentially. Yep. Yeah, no, I have. It's the only job I've ever had. Oh, bless. So. Brian, thank you so much oh, for, for uh, having us here and nope. for, for allowing us to relive our childhood here. Oh, no problem. Here. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys want to go ride now? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Coming up, we'll cruise over to the Lake Erie Island of South Bass for a visit to the only International Peace Memorial in the National Park System as we learn about Ohio's role in the War of 1812. Conversely, it was the worst defeat ever of any naval fleet. So we, celebrate, we commemorate the battles, and we celebrate the international peace, um, partly with this incredible Doric column that you can see from both countries. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm James from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you, and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. 
Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. I'm Tom Barry, and I'm an actor reaching out with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, which works with private landowners to protect wildlife, preserve natural habitats, and create permanent sanctuaries. To learn more, call 800-729-SAVE or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Bookie, my name is Shane. I'm a Blackfoot from the Six Gun Nation. I encourage you to tune into World Footprints Radio and come out to Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park in southern Alberta to experience the Blackfoot people and culture. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. One of the decisive battles in the War of 1812 took place in Lake Erie's Putin Bay, where Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry captured the British squadron and raised the now-famous don't-give-up-the-ship flag on board the U.S. Brig Niagara. We'll learn about the Battle of Lake Erie and the lasting peace that continues to this day between the United States, Great Britain, and Canada as we walk the grounds of Perry's Victory and International Peace Memorial with the National Park Service's Marianne Duvendak. Ranger Duvendak, welcome to World Footprints. Well, thanks for having me. We are always excited to come back to this part of Ohio, particularly at, at this time with their having been so many commemorations of the War of 1812, and we happen to be here today on a very special day. Talk to us about what's been happening here today. Today is Flag Day. June 14th is designated as Flag Day by Congress, and the Smithsonian had an idea. Some folks sat around, and they had an idea, and they said, wouldn't it be cool if everybody in the United States all stopped at the same time and sang the national anthem? We are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner by Francis Scott Key. And so the idea was to gather in these grassroots uh, forums and sing that national anthem together. Well, as as we walk the grounds here at uh, the memorial, talk to us about, A, what visitors can expect to see here because there's this tall, almost lighthouse-like looking structure that in some ways reminds me of the Washington Monument in Baltimore when I look at the top and a huge monument down in Texas that has a massive star on it. So <laughs> tell us about uh, about the monument here. This is the world's tallest Doric, D-O-R-I-C, Doric column, uh, Greek in form, very classically designed. It was designed to commemorate the not only the Battle of Lake Erie that happened in September of 1813, but to celebrate the peace between the United States, Great Britain, and Canada. The Canadian border is only four miles from Mm -hmm. us right here. Um, And we appreciate that we are on part of this 4,000-mile-long international undefended border. That's an amazing fact. So at Perry's Victory, we talk about this naval battle, uh, greatest naval battle of the United States in the War of 1812. Conversely, it was the worst defeat ever of any naval fleet. So we celebrate, we commemorate the battles, and we celebrate the international peace, um, partly with this incredible Doric column that you can see from both countries. Mm. It's, it's a symbol for both. It was built, um, started in 1913 at the centennial of the War of 1812 and the Battle of Lake Erie. States, folks from all over the country, states who provided young men, husbands, sons, uncles, to fight in the War of 1812, donated materials. For example, the granite is called uh, Milford Granite. It comes from Milford, Massachusetts. Other, uh, the 
structure on top we call the urn. It's made out of bronze. It comes from Rhode Island, where Commodore Perry was born. So all these states came together to provide the materials to create this monument. It is the third tallest monument in the National Park Service. If you were to bring the Statue of Liberty over here, and you were on our observation deck, you would be looking down onto the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Our observation deck is 15 feet taller than the torch on the Statue of Liberty. That's something that folks just have the most difficult time wrapping their head around. Of course, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis is tallest in the National mm -hmm. Park. Washington Monument, which just reopened, is the tallest. We're the, or the second tallest, but we're the tallest open-air observation deck. If you look up now, you can see folks probably waving at us. I see. You can see hats up there. The views on a day like this are spectacular, easily a 30-mile hmm. radius. You can see mainland Ohio. You can see mainland Michigan. Large amount of the Canadian mainland and the Canadian islands. Talk to us about the battle that took place here. If you look at a map of North America, it becomes very obvious strategically that whoever controls the Great Lakes controls an entire continent. Mm -hmm. If you zero in, use that Google Earth button and zero in, you see that western Lake Erie is the where the supply lines for either direction turn. You have to control the western basin of Lake Erie. That was the purpose of having a fleet here. The British are just 10 or 12, 13 miles away, uh, south of Detroit. Mm -hmm. They have, are armed and ready to go. The Americans are here watching, um, waiting to see who is going to make that first move. Um, as it turned out, the British had a really tough decision to make. They were a young crew. They were a fairly inexperienced crew because, of course, all the naval things that are going on in the Atlantic, not only with the United States, but Britain was still fighting the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. They were low on soldiers, so they uh, didn't exactly have their A-team here, but men who were dedicated to holding on to this western frontier of the United States and of Great Britain. The British were low on provisions, and they made the decision to sail. Came down what is now the Michigan uh, side of the lake, United States knew they were doing this. They had spies on both sides. They both knew who had what ships, and they knew approximately who had what kind of armaments and what their staffing levels were. And Perry decided that was the day he was going to take on the British. Hmm. At the uh, During the battle, the United States uh, ran into a few difficulties. Partly, again, we also have an inexperienced young crew. Only about 10% of the men on those tall ships those sailing ships were actually sailors. The rest were soldiers from Fort Meigs and other militia groups, uh, Marines who are can fire guns. They know how to fire cannons. They don't know how to sail a ship. Hmm. So those folks, so the British are low on provisions and they're, they're hurting. The Americans have a young, inexperienced crew. So it was um, a battle of wits and wills when we got out there. Oliver Hazard Perry went out in a ship named the Lawrence named after a friend of his who had been killed in a battle earlier on the Atlantic. And in secret, uh, he had a battle flag made up. And the battle flag said, don't give up the ship. Hmm. Supposedly, these are Lawrence's last words. I always wonder why he didn't say, uh, tell my mother I love her. But no, he said, don't give up the ship. Immortalized for that. Perry had the... Hence the flag. Hence the flag. The, the, the don't give up the ship flag, very similar to the battle flag, which is, the original is still in Annapolis at the Naval okay. Academy, the U.S. Naval Academy. 
so Perry goes out, he puts, he's on the brig now, or he's on the brig Lawrence, he puts his battle flag up, the Americans all shout huzzah, this man is young, he's smart, he's energetic, he's ready to go. His second in command on the brig Niagara is uh, uh, Elliot, and Elliot might have been a little missed that Perry got the command of the Great Lakes Squadron, maybe yes, maybe no, um, but at any rate, for some reason during the battle, Elliot didn't quite follow the battle plan. Hmm. It's not true that he was texting. I, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that he wasn't sending a text message at that time. But for some reason, he didn't follow up. Plus, the winds were not in Perry's favor that day. The Americans also sailed with short guns, short carronades. Okay. These are, uh, you can fire them about a half a mile. They're accurate to about a quarter mile. The British have ships, which are bigger. We're sailing brigs. They also had long guns, which you can shoot half a mile accurate, or shoot a mile accurate to half a mile. Mm -hmm. So the British has more firepower. We actually had more vessels. They had more firepower and really more experience. They're engaged in battle, and the British, uh, the Detroit and the Queen Charlotte, are hammering the Lawrence. Hmm. Hammering the Lawrence. The Lawrence, with uh, Perry at the helm, is not getting the support from the Niagara, and Commander Elliot that he thought should be there, Captain Elliot. The wind shift. All of a sudden, things change. The wind shift, and somehow, even though we had less firepower and less accurate firepower, the United States managed to kill or disable all of the commanders of the British ships. So now the British ships are being operated by young men. 17, 18, 19-year-old young men are now operating these ships. Um, the wind shifts, Perry takes advantage of that wind shift. Unfortunately, the British in that wind shift tied up the mast of two of their ships, their, two, their flagships, now have their masts entangled. They're being um, staffed by young, somewhat inexperienced mm -hmm. men, but Perry's flagship is completely disabled. So what happens is Perry takes down his battle flag, and I just imagine what the Americans must have said when they saw Perry's battle flag comes down that must have been heartbreaking and mm -hmm. the British are going hey not so bad for us unbeknownst to the British Perry gets in a long boat sails across on Lake Erie in these windy now windy conditions sails over to the Niagara boards it knowing that Elliot has either maybe completely disobeyed commands or maybe wasn't able to the wind conditions but at any rate could have been some tension there when Perry boarded that ship he gets on the Niagara he hoists that battle flag back up. Hmm. Imagine what the Americans would have said when they saw that flag go back up. That's your that's your shot of uh, adrenaline, right? Oh there. yeah. And the British. Imagine what the British are thinking. Oh my gosh! <laughs> what did he can't? How did the guy do that? How did he do that? Hmm. So, so that our audience um, can have a, a visual, uh -huh. an audio visual. Sure. What is the difference? Uh, the mileage difference that he sailed um, from Perry's Victory and International Peace Memorial here in the Putten Bay Harbor, mm -hmm. about 14 miles to the south and west of here. Okay. The closest to an island called Rattlesnake Island, which is an Ohio uh, uh, nature preserve, uh, Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge actually uh, takes care of that. So they're actually closer to Michigan than they are here at mm -hmm. that point in time. Um, the battle ensues. The British, these young officers, said, oh my goodness, Perry's up, he's got his battle flag. Perry takes that brig Niagara and he strafes both sides. Mm -hmm. He's 
he's shoot, firing what's called a broadside. You fire all the cannons on one side. It's called a broadside. He's laying broadside left and right. The British said, we can't do this. We, we give. Hmm. The entire British squadron taken in one battle. Perry comes back, gets an envelope out, and writes a letter that says, Dear General Harrison, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. Hmm. Talk about understatement. Yeah. <laughs> Under, it's the worst defeat ever of the British Navy. And Perry, instead of gloating or anything, he says, we have met the enemy, and they mm. are ours. After the battle, um, for me, I think one of the true testaments of Perry's um, uh, gentlemanness and his officer, his esprit de corps, is that he had all his officers returned to shore for burial. Uh, enlisted men, the sailors are buried at sea. But he also insisted that the British, or he made sure that the British brought their officers back, that they were buried mm -hmm. here in, in the land. Just up in the village park here is where they were originally interred with, and Perry allowed the British to uh, show full military honors for their mm -hmm. dead fallen. The true um, warriors and yet kindred spirits in yeah. some way, that they understood that we both were engaged in this battle, in this horrific mm -hmm. battle. They, um, when this column was built, this huge granite column built here, the remains of officers, both American and British, were disinterred, and they have been reinterred here in the rotunda of the memorial. So it is um, a tomb also. Three American officers, three British officers, hmm. buried in a common grave. Hmm. That shows what it means to have an international ally, to be a friend with a yeah. country, staunch friends. When you bury your officers together, with full honors. That says something about the nature of both countries. Indeed. Now, we're standing in front of a, a, a granite pillar that mm -hmm. has Niagara stamped mm -hmm. into it, yep. which um, is uh, a uh, homage to... Ship. Right. What about the pillar across from that us? That says the Lawrence. Okay. okay. Say the Lawrence. So we have the two American flagships here. Inside the rotunda, in addition to the uh, remains here, we also list all the men, all the American men, who lost their lives that mm. day. Up farther in the column, we have plaques that show the men who survived and received what's called prize money, um, the spoils of war, if you will, the booty that you split up afterwards. Mm. It's how um, men were paid in this. One of the other things that we don't talk about very much in American history is the fact that in this particular case, 10 to 20 percent of Perry's men were African-American men. This is one of the few places African-Americans hmm. could serve, not as indentured servants, not as slaves, but as genuine sailors and soldiers. So a large portion of his, 15 percent, that's a pretty serious yeah. amount, uh, were African-American sailors who made this, this, possible, this uh, battle possible. And it's, and it's important because a lot of times when we think of this history, we don't necessarily think of the connections to to all Americans at that time. And exactly. so there are very powerful stories for everyone to uh, uh, partake in and appreciate just how diverse our country is, just how how we've all fought these battles together. And, and I think in coming to places like the Perry Monument here, we can really appreciate that and appreciate some of the very nuanced things, even about the U.S.-British relationship that, uh, that this place speaks to. One of the other things, that one of the, at the War of 1812, 
We're just 25, 30 years past independence. And the rest of the world wasn't sure if this little startup country is going to make it or not. You know, Napoleon's out trying to conquer the rest of Europe. You know, well, we can, somebody can take the United States back. They're just, they're just a new, they're the new kids on the block. The War of 1812 cemented our place as a world power, and that gave folks a whole new experience. The idea that the national anthem was written during a War of 1812 battle mm-hmm. is that's a, that's an, a very powerful, very powerful thing. Rockets' red glare. If you look over the lake, you can imagine the rockets' red glare, bombs bursting in air right over Lake Erie, mm-hmm. and yet. Here we are today in this incredible, beautiful blue sky, low humidity Ohio day, northwestern Ohio. We're pleased to see a day like this mm-hmm. that we can celebrate it and share it with the, with our friends. Now, for the visitors who come to Putin Bay, uh, there is a lot for people to see and experience. It actually allows one to really... Uh, decompress mm-hmm. and Absolutely. because because we're out here on an island yeah. and 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 in many ways it uh, reminds people uh, who I'm sure come from back east of places like Martha's Vineyard or even Mackinac give people a sense of what they can experience here as well as a visitor to the island or to these Lake Erie Islands in general come into the Lake Erie Islands you need a boat that's kind of the first thing there are there are ferries you can bring cars across there are people ferries you can bring pleasure craft. So come out and boat. Lots of easy, very accessible ways to do that. Here on South Bass Island, the village is called Putin Bay. Perry put his boats into huh. the bay. You take them out of the bay, you take out of the bay, <laughs> and you put into the bay. So we put into the harbor right here in front of us, uh, sheltered by Gibraltar Island on the far side, which is now owned by the Ohio State University. They operate the Franz Stone Laboratories. It's the largest freshwater aquatic study hmm. center in the United States. And yes, it does have a castle on it because every university should have an island <laughs> in Lake Erie with a castle on it. Uh, Putin Bay, uh, the South Bass Island, over the years has sort of been the uh, sort of the wild child of the Lake Erie Islands. We have several others who are not quite so developed as here at Putin Bay and Perry's or at um, South Bass Island. Uh, great food, great entertainment. Um, history, I mean the history that happens here, and yet uh, it's easily accessible to everyone who wants to come out. Ranger Duvendak on Flag Day in your home state. Exactly. Thank you for the honor of sharing Perry's Victory and International Peace Memorial with our audience on World Footprints. Thank you so much for being pleasure. with us thanks today. For, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints Radio Show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or if you want to hear our World Footprints Travel Report giving you the day's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, subscribe to our newsletter, click on any social media icon to follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. Also, you can now listen to World Footprints on iHeartRadio and Stitcher Mobile. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty, 
the only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.